We're going to be in Genesis 33 tonight, Jacob's reconciliation with Esau. You can turn there if you'd like. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for this time. I pray that you would guide our time. I pray that you would, uh, by way of your breathed out word, that you would inform us and instruct us and transform us by the renewal of our minds, that you would warn us, that you would show us examples, um, that you would uh, use the word as you see fit to conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, Lord, each of us sits here in a process of sanctification and uh, to be called your child, um, to to be known as your children is is a real blessing that I hope we don't ever lose sight of. And and it's not common. It's, It's amazing that we are praying right now and that you actually are listening, that you hear and that not only that you hear us, but that you know our deepest needs before we voice them and that you've guided each of us uh, to this place in particular ways, physically and spiritually. And um, Lord, you're always doing more than we know. Lord, tonight I pray um, for the details about reconciliation as, as I know even before we begin that there are things that need to be articulated that I do not know how to articulate right now. And so I, I've trusted you in the preparation of this study, but Lord, we also trust you in the delivery of it, and we trust you in receiving your words uh, clearly via uh, your breathed out scripture. So Lord, we humble ourselves before you tonight and ask that you would speak uh, to us uh, for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 33. If this is your first time here, we've been walking through Genesis for a while, uh, just a verse at a time, and where we are right now is we're focusing on the life of Jacob, really. Um, in the previous chapters, up through Genesis 1 through 11, it's kind of a view of all of humanity, and we see Adam and Eve, and we see uh, Noah, we see Babel and Babylon, and we see godlessness, and we see the... Um, Lots of ups and downs. We see those who are created to be image bearers of God living in a way that doesn't give much regard to God. And we see a remnant um, saved through Noah. And then after that, um, we go through and we get to Genesis 12 and the, and the focus really narrows to uh, a family, particularly the family of Abraham who was Abram, got a new name. Abraham, his wife, Sarai, got a new name, Sarah. And God's promise to them was what? For those of you who have been here. Say that again. You give them a son. What else? Land. What else? Into a nation. Uh, Offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So that's a lot. Um... And so we go through, and they have a son whose name is what? Isaac. And eventually Isaac has a son whose name is what? <laughs> Jacob, yeah. And so um, we're now focusing on Jacob's uh, journey. And what I want us to see is that we're, we're really just getting to watch a guy who is just going through life and dealing with hard life issues. There's a number of ups and downs. There's a number of um, dealings that they have that have lots of uncertainty. You see family dynamics. You see bad decisions and the result of the bad decisions. You see good decisions and the results of the good decisions. You see lots of ups and downs. 
uh, as we get to look at Jacob, we're observing a man who is being sanctified. We're observing a life that is not, I mean, obviously there's obvious differences, but really the ups and downs that they're dealing with are just having to do with the culture they're living in, the world as they're engaging in each other and living uh, in places and moving and um, dealing with household issues and all kinds of things. But we're, we're really getting a pretty intimate view of the ups and downs here. Last week, we, we observed a particularly pivotal moment, moment in Jacob's life where he's preparing to meet with Esau and then he wrestles with God. Uh, as he prepares to meet again with Esau, what did we see in Jacob? Fear. Uh, and where did that fear come from? Yeah, last time he saw Esau, Esau was actually comforting himself by saying, I will kill my brother. That's how he was comforting himself. Um, so that's bad, and that would cause uh, fear in lots of people. What else caused fear in Esau as far as the reuniting with, with his brother uh, fear in Jacob as he reunites with Esau. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. He, he's, <laughs> here we have Jacob kind of sucking up and sending gifts ahead of him. He sends all these gifts with all these people, and every time they come up to Esau, they say, uh, Jacob's on the way, here you go. Jacob's on the way, here you go. Jacob's on the way, here you go. And then they come back and say, oh, Esau's coming with 400 men. So this looks like a bad deal. There's fear there. Uh, last week, we saw, we saw good things in Jacob's life. We saw bad things in Jacob's life, as we do in everyone we engage in the Scripture, except for the Lord that's only good all the time. How does Jacob's view of the eternal affect his view of the temporal? What are some things that we saw and how we dealt with temporal issues that you saw clearly affected by his eternal views? Yep, he remembered God's promises. There's that recorded prayer. Remember, that's one of the longest recorded prayers in Genesis, or the longest recorded prayer in Genesis, where we see him praying, saying, uh, uh, O God, my father of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and go to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have two camps. We see him making these hard decisions, and what we're seeing is, is he willing to suffer loss for the sake of obedience and putting God's glory on display? Yes. He's willing to suffer loss. Um, but it looks like weakness in, in a lot of moments. Um, what have we learned about Jacob thus far? What are just the things that as we have looked at Jacob in the last few weeks, what are the things that jump out to y'all? Yeah. And what are some things he still struggles with? Even though he's wrestling with God and making hard decisions for the good of his family, what are some things he still struggles with? Boldness. And if you struggle with boldness, what is that a sign of other things you struggle with? 
pride. On, yeah. Yeah, rather than reading, the, as, as we dive more and more into this unbelievable narrative, we don't find these total weirdos that are completely hard to relate to. Jacob's probably fairly, I mean, not, no one in here has four wives, but I mean, it's, he's probably pretty easy to, the ups and downs, uncertainty, what's he going to do? Well, he was having, he was doing so good, but then he just, he looks like a, a pansy over here. He's not bold here. He was bold here. Um, why would God allow his child to wrestle with him and prevail? Give him confidence? Give him a limp? What, well, that's, why would he give him a limp? What's the limp do? Yeah, don't forget, I could have ended you. And I can't end you at any moment. Yeah, perseverance, what else? Mercy? What else? Confidence, fortitude, masculinity. Got his man card back. End of himself, absolutely. Okay. Last week we ended with a few verses. One is James 1.12. You don't have to turn there, just listen. James 1.12 and 1 Peter 4.12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. As we're going through this and we see trials that people are going through, it should make us sober. It, it should sober us into realizing we should not be surprised at trials when they come. It's through these trials that, that uh, character is formed through perseverance. God transforms us through this process of sanctification to be more like Christ in these trials. A lot of times our prayers are not welcoming of the trials. A lot of times our prayers are just deliver us from the trial, take the trial away, make the trial go away, make the trial not hurt too bad, and, and all these things of diverting from it when maybe our prayers in the light of this should be more in line of, Lord, in this trial, help me to put your glory on display. In this trial, help me to show the boldness that you would have me show. In this trial, help me to be sober-minded and show mercy and not be hateful, malicious, um, or murderer even in the next chapter. Um, we should not be surprised as though something strange were happening to us. Transitionally, these next two chapters, 33 and 34, it's not really major high points and major low points. It's, it's just kind of constant ups and downs for Jacob and his family. And I wanted us to consider Romans 7.21. Keep your finger in Genesis, but turn over to Romans. And I'm giving all this heads up, verse up front stuff, because I really want us to just have a sober picture of what's going on here because it's so easy to get because it's easy for us to have one study where we see Jacob doing great and then next week we could have another study where Jacob's a total bonehead and if we're not sober-minded we walk away saying well that just doesn't make any sense it just doesn't add up if God's God and, and he loves God it wouldn't be like that and that's not true and Romans seven twenty one speaks to that it says so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right Evil lies close at hand. What we're seeing is that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other from doing what the other wants to do. How would y'all describe that in different words? What does that mean? Okay. And when, when particularly? All the time? When you're doing what's right. 
That's, that's how it normally is. I mean, if you're doing what's right, sometimes we can kind of take our guard down, take the armor off. Think, yeah, I'm tracking. I'm doing good. I'm making good decisions. I'm not yelling at my family. I'm giving consistently. Um, and when those things are going right, you're doing right things. It, it has to be an act of worship. And if we're worshiping rightly, we're, we're not going to drop our guard and allow um, the temptation just to come in as though we think temptation is no longer an issue. Temptation is always an issue. Evil lies close at hand when you're doing what's right. He finds it to be a, a law or a rule. When things are going good and, man, things are, you're doing well and you've made good decisions and you've been strong, there's going to be a temptation to not continue in that. There's going to be something that presents itself that says, you know, that's too hard. That's not worth it. Um, if you do this, it's going to be a lot easier. We're going through Pilgrim's Progress as a staff right now. And we see, we saw in our chapter this morning, Mr. Worldly Wiseman um, from the city of uh, legalism or something. Um, he, he is trying to go against what the evangelist says. And he's saying, it's just not worth it. All these Christians, they're signing up for trials. All these Christians are just signing up for hard times. All these Christians are just signing up for, for heartache that's just not needed. It's just not worth it. Don't listen. He's not passive. He actively wants to go against what the evangelist told Christian in his journey. So it brings us to chapter 33 in Genesis, verses 1 through 3. Now, remember, most of chapter 32 is Jacob trying to butter up Esau, sending him gifts, sending him gifts, my Lord, my Lord, bowing seven times, all this stuff. And then he actually is met in the night. Now, how old is Jacob? like 90-something, old. And so it's the middle of the night, and someone just punches him in the side of the head or something, and they wrestle, and it's God, and he prevailed, but obviously God let him win, taught him some things. When it was done, his hip wasn't hurt from the wrestling. His hip was hurt because at the end, God said, just so you know, and just touched his hip. It wasn't hurt in the wrestling. It was because he touched the socket. Um, And then we come to chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Now, (laughs) pay attention to what Jacob does here, because it's funny. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Why is that funny? Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, high and low points here. Um, What does this show that Jacob is still showing in his household? Favoritism. Absolutely. It's inevitable. He takes, do you remember the servants' names, anybody? Anybody? Zilpah and Bilhah. Zilpah and Bilhah, uh, he's looking at his family. He's looking at 400 men in Esau, who last time he saw him was plotting to kill him. And he went ahead of him. It said that he went ahead, so at least he did that. But he formed a human shield around Rachel. He says, all right, Zilpah and Bilhah, y'all were just kind of part of the deal. Separate. Y'all go first uh, with the children we made together. And then um, Leah uh, you're still not as pretty as Rachel. Y'all go, you go next with the babies we made. And then Rachel, and I really like Joseph, so y'all stay back here. Just let the others go first. And it's, the thinking goes as it was before when he said, I'm going to divide the camps. If one camp dies, the other will live. 
And so he wants to make sure that Zilpah and Bilhah would die first, and then Leah, and then Rachel. It's favoritism. It's funny, and it's horrible, and it's, and it's awkward, because he shouldn't have four wives anyway. I mean, this is the problem from the get-go. He's still, as a believer, there's still a sense of you will reap what you sow to a degree on earth. So he still has four wives. There's still issues and heartache that he's going to deal with there because he didn't go according to God's design. And here we see favoritism. And here we see because of favoritism, there is um, uh, oppression against some and not others. And I, I wouldn't call it fair um, to Zilpah and Bilhah. We may not like them either because of what we saw in the previous chapters when they're the whole um, passion fruit thing and making all the babies in one chapter. Um, but it's still not fair that, okay, you be a human shield for Rachel and you be a human shield for Rachel. And Rachel just, if, if anything happens, just run. Um, it, it's, it's a funny plan, but it's not a great plan. So we see that um, it's humorous. There's a human shield. But here's... The other part of that, God has ordained that Jacob and his family have to march into harm and uncertainty. A lot of times we make a mistake of thinking, God would never, because God loves me, because he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, God would never want us to have to march into harm's way. And here we see it's God's plan very much that he has to see Esau. God was the one who called him away from Laban's house. God is the one who told him where to go. And to go where he has to go, he has to encounter Esau. And he has to do so with his family. And he goes out ahead of them, but he has to encounter the hard time. God doesn't just say, oh, don't worry, Jacob. I'll, I'll make Esau forget where he is or who you are or you won't have to encounter him. He says, no, you're going to march forward and you're going to lead the way. Um, verses uh, 4 through 5. But Esau, and get this, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Anyone expect that to happen? And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you, Jacob? Said the children whom God has graciously given your servant. This is quite the turn of events. Why? We had a whole chapter of worrying about Esau, wanting to kill him. Last time we saw Esau, he was comforting himself to kill him. Here he comes with 400 men, and he runs up, and he doesn't kill him. He gives him a hug and starts weeping like a sissy. We don't, that's not the Esau that we knew before. The Esau that we knew was hairy and a crazy wild man and gave way to the solicitation of the flesh. Now he's, oh, brother, I love you. And they're weeping together and, and hugging each other. And it almost looks like brothers who love each other. It's not what we expected. Esau seems to have softened. Now, take the perspective in. Ironically, Jacob's greatest fear was who? Esau. And it should have been God. Turn to Isaiah 8. We've seen this verse as Ben has been talking, uh, preaching, talking, that sounded horrible, you know, when he does his talky talk, um, as Ben has been preaching uh, on being hated by the world, this is a verse that came up in the first week or two, Isaiah 8, verses 13 through 14, and it says, um, we'll just start in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, Isaiah 8, verse 11, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, 
Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. What he's saying is that if you go to lunch with co-workers who don't know Jesus and don't have a kingdom perspective, the talk is likely going to be what we're worrying about, who's conspiring to take our money and our guns and whatever else. We don't call conspiracy what other people call conspiracy. And we don't get wrapped up in worldly things like that. Rather, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And look what it means to honor him as holy. How do you honor God as holy? You let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. When we fear the Lord, when the Lord is our fear and our dread, what happens? For those who fear him, what does he become? Our peace, a sanctuary. What do y'all think of when you think of sanctuary? Maybe not this one particularly. What? Safety? Security? Refuge? Now, how does that jive with fear and dread? Yeah, if, if our fear and dread is not the Lord, then we're not driven to him because he's the only one that can be a sanctuary from himself. Much like when Jacob wrestled with him, God's the only one that could help Jacob win against God. Does that make sense? Did that make sense? I, I actually don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, when my child is ends up on a playground somewhere and has this opportunity to sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit, I'm hoping that my child fears what I have communicated to them, particularly fears the Lord as opposed to their friends and what their friends think is best for the occasion. And so here we just see that the Lord is saying, I'm your fear, I'm your dread, and I'm your sanctuary. But if other things are your fear and other things are your dread, you're not going to be wanting to come to me to be sanctuary until all of it falls apart and you want to complain about the way it went when all you did was really sow to the flesh as opposed to the spirit. So turn back to Genesis. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the exact words in 33 were, um, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I mean, you see him creating a scenario that doesn't actually exist. It's possible if all things go horribly, but do you fear and dread the Lord so that the Lord is your sanctuary? Or are you going to fear and dread Esau so that just deliverance from Esau is your sanctuary? There's a, a massive difference between the two. Um, uh, like a man who respects God, what does Jacob do when, when Esau says, who are all these people? Jacob says what? Yeah, yeah, Jacob points to God, and that's really important here. This is a good point for Jacob. When, when they say, 
uh, who, where did this come from? Oh, th- this is God's blessing on my life. These, this is my family. Um, you met Zilpa and Bilhah first, and then you <laughs> met, yeah. But, um, but he, he points to God. It's kind of like if someone comes into your business, says, wow, what's going on here? It'd be great if your first thing was saying, well, God has blessed us immensely, and let me tell you how. Or if they come to your home, or if you're introducing your family to someone, to point to God first is not just something we do as a, as, a, as a Christian cultural mandate kind of thing. It's because all true blessing comes from God. If it doesn't come from God, it's not true blessing. It's quite the opposite. And so here he says, uh, the Lord has blessed me. Um, Jacob's being light and aromatic here, and it's good. Look at verses 6 through 7. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Now, um, you may have a family that is not reconciled. As we're looking at reconciliation here between wayward family members, I'm really aware that there's probably some sitting here right now that are unreconciled with family or friends or someone else. And reconciliation is a really hard thing that I don't think we're generally good at. Um, And we don't have a natural tendency (laughs) towards it. Um, Here, it's interesting because what does the family do? All four wives do something that is pretty remarkable. They came and bowed down. Jacob went forward and was humble. said, my brother, I'm coming in low here, dude. Don't cut me. And then the wives do the same thing. And it's interesting because not one of them did what she could have done. What could one of the wives have done? We know they're all four overbearing women. What could one of them have done? Not bowed or run away or even more than just not bowing. Yeah, who do you think you are, Esau? This is Jacob, the blessed one. You sold your birthright. You were plotting to kill my husband? Oh, he'll not have that. I mean, you could just see one of the four making a horrible decision to mess up. And in reality, that is how it can be with family. Now, I'm treading on thin ice here. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. one of them could have said, Esau, will you please kill this chump? Yeah. Um, this, uh, it, this is a reality for many of us probably sitting here that um, you can be a spouse who puts a greater strain on the family dynamic than needs to be there. Um, when y'all go in for Christmas time with your family um, and you get in the car and leave, do you immediately stir up all the junk that you just endured? You know when you get in the car after you've been with your family and you both want to go insane? Do, do you sow towards peacefulness? Or do you say, man, what in the world? Our, our families are crazy people. That was horrible. If she says this one more time, if he does this one more time, if I had to listen to this, if I had to eat this thing or whatever, I mean, there's so much you can do to sow towards discord within the family. And here, I think it's really interesting that they all come up and they all follow the lead of the leader of the family, even though, he, you know, it's not obviously the ideal dynamic. But 
there's not a lot of discord here. And these are two brothers who have nothing but bad blood. There's no point where they can look back and say, like on the camel ride to where Jake, to Esau was, they couldn't have said, hey, let's just focus on Christmas of 2003. Remember that one? That was a good one. Let's just focus on that. They don't have anything to point back to that's not really bad. I mean, from the get-go, Jacob was grabbing his heel on the way out of the womb. It was strife and discord from the beginning. It was enmity by God's design in the womb. And so uh, this could have turned out a lot different had one of the family members or children, his sons are also really hot-headed. We're going to find out in the next chapter. So it's amazing that not even one of his sons went up and just punched Esau in the nose because they were pretty bad dudes, as we'll see in the next chapter. Um, But I think it gives us insight into uh, we can each play a role within our own families or our own friendships to stir up discord or to encourage and promote peace and unity. And the words that we use and the responses that we have will do one or the other. And we should encourage our spouses in a like manner to not be divided um, where we are fostering an environment of enmity and strife, especially between family, especially between believers. Um, And that can obviously happen between believers, as we'll talk about later. Um, So uh, don't be a bigger strain on something when you could be sowing towards um, the fruitfulness of of love, joy, peace, and patience, things like that. So this may be a situation that's familiar to some of you. Um, You may have no desire to even be reconciled to those whom you are not squared with. You may be sitting here and thinking, yeah, I'm not reconciled with this person, and I don't even want to be reconciled with that person, which I want to spend some time there tonight. Because what reasons did Jacob have not to want to be reconciled with Esau? Huh? You tried to kill me. That's, that's one. What else? His pride? Yeah? Yeah? Why else? There's lots of reasons. He had what he needed. Yeah. Why would Esau not want to be reconciled with Jacob? Yeah, you little swindler mama's boy. You took my birthright. I mean, we could, we could spend the rest of our time tonight coming up with lists of why they wouldn't want to be reconciled. But the reality is, is I, I believe that reconciliation is largely misunderstood. And I really hope that these next few verses help to shed biblical light on the way that we should respond. Because if you're sitting here and you have other people that you're holding a grudge against, if you're sitting here with a record of wrongs, against someone, or if you're sitting here with, without any desire to be reconciled to someone to whom you really need to be reconciled, I would offer that's not a biblical approach. And that's really hard because you might be thinking, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. But I know what we've done to God and I know what he did in the way of reconciliation. I know that he has set the standard for what we're supposed to follow. And so we're going to talk about that in these next few verses. And, I, and I'm, I've really prayed ahead of time that this would be sobering and humbling to those of us who, who need to hear this. Um, what is an irreconcilable difference? That's a phrase you hear often in divorce terms, an irreconcilable difference. What is that? 
Can't meet in the middle? Agree to disagree? Unforgiveness? What makes something a scenario or a deed irreconcilable? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. It's the noble way that our culture divorces. And I probably am offending someone at some point. But it's the noble way that our culture says, you know what? It's just irreconcilable. Now, my next question is, what does it mean to be reconciled? Say that again. To forgive? It's a big part of it, yeah. What else? Yes. Yeah. If, <laughs> if the only thought of reconciliation that you have is, okay, as long as all my terms are met, we're reconciled. That doesn't normally lead to reconciliation. You're at odds in the first place. So if you're going to have to settle for something less than what you may have thought was ideal. What else? What else is reconciliation? To restore. And what does that restoration look like? Humility. Huh? Investment. Yep. Yep. To rebuild. And what is it that usually needs to be rebuilt? Trust. Respect. Uh huh. Yeah. What if someone did something really disrespectable, disrespectful, and disrespectable? What if they did something that was really horrible? Yes. Yeah, and why is that hard? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That is probably one of the most uncultural statements we've ever made in this room. I mean, we are so good at holding grudges. We are so good at holding a record of wrongs. We are not generally good in leaning in the direction of, you know what? Yeah, you wronged me, but you're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ, and I'm, I'm not about to hold this against you. That's not normal. And from a cultural perspective, what does it look like? Weakness. It looks like weakness, but it's not weakness. A desire to be reconciled is not weakness. It doesn't mean you're less of a man or less of a woman if you have a desire to be reconciled, even if you've been horribly and greatly wronged. It's not weakness. 
Everything inside of me wants to say, that's weakness. I'm not about to let them chump me. I'm not about to let them make me look like a, a, an idiot who didn't know what I was thinking, or, or I'm not about to let my words be twisted, or it looks weak, but it's not weakness. Look at verses 8 through 11. We're going to look at some details here. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? I mean, Esau's been, he's really sensitive. Uh, it's funny. Uh, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Like, did you think I was going to do something to you? Like kill you the last time we talked with 400 men? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. I mean, he calls him my Lord. He looks like a sissy. He does. And he is in a sense. Yeah? 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 Yeah. 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 That is exactly true. And he's a sissy. Like, you're right. Everything you just said is right. Like, like, yes, it's probably mean to call him a sissy, a little harsh. But that's exactly right. He is coming in low. He is willing to suffer loss. He also has issues with boldness and being passive and not making good decisions for his family, while at other times he does make great decisions for his family. There's ups and downs here. It's not perfectly yes or perfectly no. So here he says, my Lord. And in verse 9 he says... But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Esau? Really? And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Then he urged him. And he took it. Have you ever seen someone try to give someone something and they didn't really want to give it away? Like your kids probably do it. Like here, you can, like they're getting in trouble. Okay, you give that toy back. Okay, here, you want the toy? And then like one of the kids gets distracted and they kind of just walk away with the toy and try to, you know, they didn't really want to give it away. Here, Jacob really wants to give Esau some gifts. Why do you think Jacob compares Esau's face to the face of God? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. He sees Esau's face and he doesn't die. And he's, he's likening this very much to what just happened because his fear and his dread supposed to be the Lord. And so he saw the Lord and he didn't die. And then he saw Esau and he didn't die. And so the, the, he says, well, it's like seeing the face of God. What he's saying is, is um, this is a celebration of God's grace again. I mean, I just wrestled with God and I didn't die. And I just saw my brother Esau and I didn't die. This is a celebration of God's grace. A life spared. Now, why do you think that Jacob still wants Esau to have gifts even though he knows he isn't going to die? Insurance? That's, that's, a, that's a great possibility. Yeah. Yeah. He owes his brother. Guilty. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We're, yeah. Yeah, we, th- that should, this is a right response for Jacob. Th- this is something that should be happening in him because of God's work to transform Jacob to be more like Christ. And we're going to see it at the end of this when we go to 2 Corinthians. But where there has been sin, there may also be need for restitution. Where there has been wrongdoing or sin, there may be need for some sort of restitution. It may not be perfect. Restitution is one of those things that's never really perfect. I mean, someone could lose their life because of another person's bad decision. And just because you get millions of dollars doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, that's even. Restitution, no matter how great it is, is often less than perfect. Always less than perfect. But where there has been sin... And where a wrong has been done, restitution is appropriate. It's appropriate that he's given Esau gifts here. The favor that he's been shown, the grace that he's been shown, he swindled his brother out of his birthright. He was dishonest in his dealings with Esau. Now Esau is fleshly. Esau does not have the work of the Spirit in him. He's hated by God. Jacob is making right or wrong by providing restitution. Why would Jacob deal graciously with Esau? We just stated it. Because God has dealt graciously with him. We should deal more graciously with others if we have an awareness of how graciously we ourselves have been dealt with. And this is a really important factor when considering reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that Mephibosheth concept. He was carried to the table, totally undeserving, seated at the table of the king. It's like you can't offend him. You've heard Ben say that. It's like you can't offend. You could say, you're a loser and don't deserve to be here. You're like, I know. I know I don't at all. You're horrible. You don't know how horrible I am. I could tell you things that would blow your mind. It's a low view of self and a high view of God that changes our view towards each other. Um, and it's important in considering with, with reconciliation. Now, verses 12 through 14 are interesting, and these are important details. So look what happens here in verse 12. Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. What's Esau saying? Come on, brother. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. Let's go on. Journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. It's a bit of an exaggeration. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. What is Esau's idea of reconciliation? Yeah, let's live life together, you and me. Now, what is Jacob's idea of reconciliation? Yeah, glad we're square, but we're not moving on together. We're reconciled, but we're not buddy-buddy. Jacob is a believer. Esau does not fear the Lord. He's not a believer. 
So what we're seeing here, this is important. We're seeing reconciliation, but that doesn't mean we're going to partner up and be teammates and, and move together in every way and make it all right. And we live together and we move together and we'll share our flocks and we'll share our bank accounts. And we'll, No, that would be a bad decision for Jacob. But they're reconciled. Sometimes we think that reconciliation can only happen if everything's perfect. And that a lot of times keeps us from desiring reconciliation. It'll never be the way that it was. There's no point in it. There's absolutely a point in it. It puts God's glory on display. It won't be the way it was. It'll likely never be the way it was. Because by some, some part, the way it was was a facade in the first place. Or you would have persevered through the hardship as opposed to dividing and going opposite ways. So what you'll end up with afterwards, you'll be, you can be reconciled, but they're not partnering. There's a believer and an unbeliever. It may happen with two believers. We can be reconciled, but it's not like we're going to just go into business together. We can be reconciled, but maybe we're not going to have dinner every week. Not buddy-buddy. What if Jacob refused reconciliation? What would he be guilty of? What if Jacob was like, Esau's coming, he's got 400 men, that jerk is still violent. No. Jacob at that point would be guilty of giving way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal matters. The same thing his brother Esau was guilty of when he sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew. When Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew, he gave way to the solicitation to the flesh, what felt good without any regard to eternal matters. And if Jacob right now was to look at Esau and say, I'm not going to be reconciled with you. He's giving way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal matters. It's, I don't care what God's done for me. I'm not doing it for you because you're a jerk. He'd be guilty of the same thing his brother was, his, his brother who hates God. Now, in verse 15 through 17, it says, So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people that are with me. I mean, Esau's being benevolent. Let me leave some people with you. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on, this, on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. So Jacob lied to Esau. That's a low point. He journeyed to Succoth, and he built himself a house and made booths for livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. That's an unfortunate name for any city. Um, <laughs> although Esau is inclined, one commentator said, although Esau seems inclined to benevolence, Jacob still distrusts him. Is Jacob being unloving by not trusting Esau completely? I think Jacob's shown discernment. I think that though Esau is seemingly benevolent and open-handed and big-hearted even, I think that it's okay that Jacob still does not seem to trust him because I don't think a Jacob's supposed to completely entrust anything to Esau by God's design. Remember, the division that exists between them is a God-ordained division. Have you ever been in the situation where you're reconciled to someone, but you still have your guard up? Anyone ever experienced that? Yeah. You're reconciled, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be careful. It doesn't mean I'm going to give you my wallet and let you, you know, just hang on to it for a while. Mm-hmm. There is... The biblical picture is forgive and don't remember, really. It's... um. We're not holding a record of wrongs, but you don't have to forget details so as to make unwise decisions in regard to the one you're trying to be reconciled to. You can be reconciled 
yet still be wise and discerning and insightful and careful. It doesn't, now there's a difference. You can go to the point of being so wise and insightful and careful that you're unloving. It's a fine line. Ultimately, you just can't do this without the Spirit. Without the work of the Spirit, you're going to fail. But by the work of the Spirit, we can actually find the right balance here, and it'll only happen prayerfully, and prayer is only good when you're praying the Word. So if you're in this situation, which is a hard situation, you go to the Word and you pray through and say, Lord, show me what to do here. Show me how to, do we have them over for dinner? Is it too early to have them back again? Should it have been a one-time thing? Uh, We haven't prayed for them. We should probably pray for them, even though things are still maybe a little weird. Yeah, there are two different scenarios. If it's believer to unbeliever, um, there is an, a, a, a manner of being yoked together. And um, in this scenario, the way he deals with Esau is especially appropriate because Esau is an unbeliever. But um, I would say that given a right response, and we're going to get to it in 2 Corinthians 5, um, you can still show discernment even with fellow believers. Because in Romans 14, it says that there are different beliefs within the same faith. So there's times where, there's times where you may be fully convinced as to what you believe, yet it's different than what someone else is fully convinced as to what they believe, and it may be a different belief within the same faith. So I believe that, yes, this can exist within two believers who may not partner in something. And I know the question you want to ask, and don't ask it. <laughs> there's a, uh, there's a, I mean, there, there are other people of faith in this town that we're not likely to partner in ministry with, but I'm not going to call all of, all of those that who, I would never call all of those that I would not partner in ministry with faithless. I'd never do that. I think that's a, a large overstatement. But I would say that some who profess to be a faith in this town are not a faith in every other town. Um, one of the things we saw in, in Pilgrim's Progress this morning was that in, uh, the town of Morality has its own church, and a lot of people like to go there. Um, here, I, I think that because there are different beliefs in the same faith, um, the point is, is quit, don't say, you need to be more like me, or you need to be more like me. The point is saying, no, focus on Christ. That's what he was saying in Romans. The Jews are looking at the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are looking at the Jews, saying, you need to be more like us. You need to be more like us. And the point is, focus on the Lord, and submit to Christ, and do it wholeheartedly. Do not be wishy-washy in your beliefs. Be fully convinced as to what you believe. Do not be wishy-washy. And when you're fully convinced as to what you believe, you'll have better insight into how to do this, and how to move forward when it's Hard and difficult to make those decisions, especially when it's someone you're trying to be reconciled with. Yeah. 
Yeah. It saturate my family with God. Yeah. <laughs> Which we'll get to next week. Yeah. Yeah. No, they have a wor- they worship the Lord. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Turn, turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll finish this chapter next week and move into 34, which is really awkward to read out loud. Um, but turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll end with this. And again, we will talk about this, the end of this chapter a little more next week. Second Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, there were those in the Corinthian church that didn't, this was a problem. The love of Christ wasn't controlling them. It was kind of like a side thing. And they were largely controlled by the flesh at a lot of times, fighting with each other, suing each other, getting drunk on the communion wine. That's kind of the things that were going on in the church in Corinth. And this is the second letter um, where there's been some movement there in that church. And he says, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If Jacob was to say, I refuse to be reconciled in any way, um, that would be living for yourself. If, if you say, I, I'm not going to give them an inch, I'm not offering forgiveness, we no longer live for ourselves, so offer forgiveness. It says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. What that means is Paul used to, he looked at Christ and just said, that's false. He's a false Messiah. And regarding him in the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So we're new creations, and our response during these um, opportunities for reconciliation are, are different because we're new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we no longer speak on our own behalf. We speak on behalf of the king who has sent us with a message. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation, so our aim should be to be reconciled to others so we might have the opportunity for God to make an appeal through us that they be reconciled to him. What I'm getting at is how how can you have and take seriously a ministry of reconciliation if you refuse yourself to even be reconciled to others. How do, it doesn't work. A.W. Pink said, Reconciliation is not a transformation of character, but the effecting of peace by the removal of all that causes offense. It's saying, you caused offense, and I'm removing what causes offense between us. 
I'm not offended. It's not normal. Reconciliation is to make an end of strife, to bring together those at variance, to change enemies into friends. Between God and the justified, there's peace affected by the blood of Christ. And I'll end with just reading this conclusion. It is hard to remove that which causes me offense. And it's easy to view people as enemies that are not enemies. There's a lot of times there's strife in a marriage because you're viewing your spouse as an enemy. And they're not your enemy at all. Sometimes we view fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as enemies and we should never do that. I personally wonder what a discouragement and even a front it must be to God to see any of his children unwilling to forgive and unmotivated to pursue reconciliation. Consider that. Consider God and what he has done viewing his children who are image bearers Consider what it must be like to, to view them being unwilling to reconcile and unmotivated to forgive. We live in a community of those who proclaim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, yet seem to be able to turn their backs on each other with ease often. If indeed we aim to put God's glory on display, we must mirror his actions and his heart. Never has any man done me more wrong than I have done to God. No man has ever done me more wrong than I have done to God. Grace is reached low by the blood of Christ to reconcile me to God who has never wronged anyone. Justice has never taken a more peculiar and otherworldly form. This divine perspective would and should make me want to disregard any offense of even my most vicious offender because no words and no actions can begin to match the wretched offense that I've exercised against my creator who is love. It's all about the perspective here. What's been done for you? Will you take seriously a ministry of reconciliation? If I can not only swallow my pride, but humbly welcome and even pursue reconciliation with all men at all cost, then I may begin to taste in minuscule part the unmatched goodness of the one true God whose image I'm created to bear. An approach like this, coming in low, willing to suffer loss, willing to be slandered and rejected will be a stench to some. Some will view you as weak when you do this. Some will say, that was not worth it, man. Your business is going to hurt. No, they're not going to respect you around here. But others will see it for what it is, and you may well have the opportunity to explain that God has forgiven us greatly, so we forgive and aim to be reconciled to each other as a display of God's great glory. This is what it means to operate within intent to the ministry of reconciliation with which we have been entrusted. Christians do not have irreconcilable differences. That's a really big statement. I debated on whether or not to even say it. I don't believe true Believers have irreconcilable differences. Yet many of us sit here unreconciled with our spouses, unreconciled with our families, unreconciled with our friends, unreconciled with other members of the community, unreconciled with people we used to go to church with. And I, I just want to close in prayer because it seems appropriate to pray that God would mercifully grant us the clarity of mind and the opportunity to repent. Because what we're, what we're going to see next week, as we look at the end of the chapter, um, without repentance, there's not a possibility of reconciliation. As we counsel people who are working through marriage problems or, or um, uh, relationship problems, if this person is steeped in sin and unwilling to repent, and this person is steeped in sin and unwilling to repent, the chances of reconciliation are very slim. As, as you counsel your children, don't do that anymore. Turn from that and be loving don't hit 
embrace what you're called, the way you're called to act with your sibling. If there's not repentance, there's not going to be reconciliation. You can't continue in sin, unrepentant, and actually truly be uh, reconciled uh, with anyone. Um, uh, I'm going to hang around afterwards if anyone has any questions. Um, and uh, I'd like to pray, and then I'll hang around if there's any questions or thoughts afterwards. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for this time. Uh, I pray that the children are okay since we've gone over in time a little bit. Um, but I do believe this to be really, really important. And I'm looking forward to next week where we can answer even more questions in, in regards to reconciliation, some of the particulars therein. Lord, you're, what you've done for us is unspeakable. The grace and mercy that those sitting here have been shown, we are eternally thankful and grateful and I pray that it's not just something we enjoy as a treasure, but I pray that it's a, a treasure we want to enjoy with others. I pray that you would guide us. I pray that we would guard our hearts rightly, but not to a point of being self-serving. I pray that we would have wisdom and insight as we are reconciled to others, though we may not be buddy-buddy in this circumstance. I pray that you would give us the the understanding so that we can have a balance there that is not a completely selfish, self-preserving, self-serving thing, but it's not haphazard to where we can welcome sin and division and arguing and quarreling when it, when it needs not be welcomed. Lord, I, I believe that what you've shown us tonight is that some, some relationships can only exist in a healthy manner because of boundaries that are set. When we throw away all, hin all hin inhibition and all concern, th there may be too, too much that is let loose and it may make a, put a strain on the relationship as opposed to making it healthier. Lord, your ways are just infinitely higher than our ways. I, I confess that in talking through these things tonight, I, I almost leave here with more questions than I do answers, and that's what the Word does. And I pray that we would be willing to persevere um, in that so that we would be a people changed, so that we'd look more like Christ, so that we'd be the aroma that you call us to be at the time you call us to be it. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for not counting our sin against us and thank you for counting the righteousness of Christ for us. I pray that we would reflect the way you are uh, in our relationships with other people even though it's really hard and not ideal at all. We love you very much, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.